and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, episode 86, Readying for the Gauntlet. Last time, the necessary arrangements had been made to cobble together 13 transport ships and the American tanker, Ohio, plus the many escorts. Now, it was time to move out. On August 2nd, aboard the Nigeria, a Crown-class light cruiser in its hangar, Rear Admiral Burrow explained to the masters, or captains, of all the ships, the details of Operation Pedestal. Within the same ship, in another location, the WT operators, or wireless telegraphists, of the merchant ships were receiving the same specifics. To Burrow and the other ranking officers, as far as they knew, this was the first time the sailors were hearing of their destination. Yet that was not the case. Afterward, the merchant captains returned to their ships and told their crews of their destination, again thinking this was the first time they would have heard of it. Again, that was not the case. What did come as a surprise to the crewmen was their departure time. It would be that evening when the docks were mostly clear of people. The ships would head out, as had so many other convoys before them, but for now, Pedestal would only be joined by a fraction of its escorts, as to not arouse suspicion. At dusk, engines were started, and slow ahead was the order given. As the merchant ships cleared the docks, the surrounding destroyer escorts, the Bicester, Bramham, and Leiberry, and Wilton, closed around them, and lined up their charges through radio orders. On board the merchants, each captain or master had a sealed letter waiting for him from the First Lord of the Admiralty, A.V. Alexander. With blunt prose, he told the men that the Admiralty appreciated their taking on such a dangerous mission. And though it was dangerous, it was also vital. Malta had had a hard time of it lately and desperately needed these supplies. And finally, that Admiral Seifert would do all he could to make sure Pedestal was a success. What the note did not contain was the mention of hoping all survived. Perhaps that was just understood. But another possibility was that everyone involved knew men would be lost. And that loss was acceptable. To the point of keeping Malta in the war and continuing to be a thorn in the side of the Axis. The next day, August 3rd, more escorts joined the convoy, coming from all over the Clyde, Londonderry, Scapa Flow, Gibraltar, and even Freetown. But it was the ships coming from the Clyde of northwest Scotland that made up Force X, its flagship, the Nigeria, along with the Kenya, Amazon, Derwent, and Zetland that joined Pedestal first. They had left a few hours after the merchants and made good speed until spotting their charges early the next morning. Before the sun set on August 3rd, Pedestal was joined by the destroyers Malcolm, Venomous, Wolverine, and Wishart, all from Londonderry in Northern Ireland, whence they refueled. Now that Real Admiral Burrow was with the convoy, he got down to having the ships practice rigid maneuvers. The masters had been a part of convoys since the war started, but here, with the current speed being 15 knots, and soon to go faster, this would be one of the fastest convoys to date. 
Also, once they were under attack, the merchant ships would have to be able to maintain that speed while engaging in complex maneuvers, hence the constant drilling. Which is why, as Burl only had a week before entering the relatively more dangerous waters of the Mediterranean, he got the drills underway. At the end of his first attempt, he rated the convoy's station-keeping as very poor. But that would change. The masters were just used to having their own way, and a lot of room. But with practice, they would all be ready to face what was ahead. As for the escorts, more were now en route to meet up with the convoy. Beyond the merchant ships was the aging aircraft carrier Argus, itself watched over by the destroyers Sardonyx and Buxton, already in the Atlantic. They would all meet up with the illustrious class aircraft carrier Victorious, along with a cruiser and the destroyers Foresight, Fury, Intrepid, and Icarus. In some ways, these four destroyers were just as important as the carriers, as they had high-speed minesweeping capability. Their true value would come into play when the convoy made its way through the Narrows, between Sicily and Tripoli, the location designated QBB-255 by the Royal Navy's maps, which was laden with many access mines. Too many ships... Men and supplies had been lost in this area already. That could not happen again. Not with Pedestal. To be sure, other gatherings of ships were on their way to meet the convoy as well. The converted or improved carrier Indomitable, now capable of holding 48 aircraft, followed by the cruiser Phoebe and three big L-class destroyers that were surging up from Freetown. Before heading into the Mediterranean, the carrier's and their planes would be put through their paces. The victorious Argus and Sirius coming from Scapa, the Eagle and Charybdis from Gibraltar, and the Indomitable from Freetown would meet for Operation Berserk. Those exercises would involve the vessels practicing anti-aircraft gunnery, turns, altering their formations, using signal flags, and short-range wireless telegraphy. Meanwhile, the aircraft would lift off and practice their attacks, radar reporting, and fighter direction. It would also allow the gunners below to get used to recognizing Victorious's new Sea Hurricanes of 885 Squadron, as fighting was expected to be heavy and nerves strained. Fueling vessels were also coming up from Freetown, as well as others waiting at Gibraltar. The tug Jaunty, a part of Force R, the oiling force, would make the entire trip to Malta, in case any ship's engines were damaged beyond repair, but the vessel itself was intact. The supplies had to have every chance of getting through. At the last minute, the Furious, the battlecruiser built during World War I, but now converted to a carrier, was tagged to join the convoy. But because of a hump in her deck, the Spitfires coming aboard would have to have hydraulic propellers in order to have enough thrust to take off. The aircraft were modified, and on August 4th, Furious got underway, with 42 aircraft, and escorted by the Manchester and the Polish destroyer, Blaskawica. A few days later, this group was met by the cruiser Sardonyx, which meant the two destroyers were allowed to return home. Together, Furious and the Sardonyx made best speed to meet up with the victorious group. 
As the various groups got closer to the Mediterranean, everyone's nervousness started to show. The one man, hopefully calm, Admiral Seifert, joined the convoy on the morning of August 3rd. And now that he was aboard, the convoy's speed was increased to 14 knots. Above the ships were several Sunderland aircraft, Britain's flying boat patrol bombers, keeping an eye out. But such was the anxiety and apprehension of the gun crews that when one of the Sunderlands flew out of a low-hanging cloud, thus seeming to appear out of nowhere, one gun crew panicked and shot the plane down. Only one of the plane's crew was rescued. That was it for Seifert. As much practicing as there had been, he ordered more. And there was no time like the present. That very day, August 4th, Seifert had the convoy practice switching from four columns to two columns, which would be mandatory when they passed through the Serki Narrows of the larger Deadly Narrows southwest of Sicily. As that was not expected to happen until August 12th, the ships had plenty of time to practice. Still, Rear Admiral Burrow had the men and ships practice during the day and through the dog watch from 4 to 8 p.m., And with repetition, the various captains started to get it right. However, when the time came for the ships to pass through the Narrows, what they faced was something no one could have foreseen and so practiced for. By the morning of August 4th, the convoy of Operation Pedestal was just outside the Mediterranean. One last time would each ship top off their fuel tanks, as there would not be time enough once the race was on and the enemy figured out something concerning Malta was afoot. As the ship started passing through the western approaches, just below Spain, the convoy had to turn some seven times as they received sub-alerts. Frayed nerves were becoming more so. Still, everyone tried to hide their fears. The next day, August 5th, saw more drills, Anything that could be done to make sure Pedestal did not end up like the two previous attempts would be done. August 6th brought in a thick fog, which severely reduced visibility. At once, the low-power wireless were brought out, so communications were not sacrificed. At 3 p.m., everyone got the word that their course was being altered again, this time to 155 degrees. Again, there had been many sub-alerts, but besides placing a destroyer around the merchantmen, no attacks came. Pedestal was, in fact, ahead of schedule. Seifert had the speed reduced to 12 knots. For the next two days, Operation Berserk was carried out, as the opportunity for this many carriers to practice together was rare. Yet also, this was the time for the fighters aboard to adjust as well. Defending an immobile position was one thing. Defending an ever-moving convoy was something else entirely. This required practice. After all, the Luftwaffe units they were too sure to run into already had experience at raiding enemy convoys. It was time to play catch-up. The Indomitable held 806 and 800 squadrons, which had just changed their aircraft before coming from the Indian Ocean. 806 gave up the full Mars for Marlitz, which the British called the American-made Grumman Wildcat, which had just come to them from the Lend-Lease program. Squadron 800 now had Sea Hurricanes. 
yet neither had had much time for training. So the next 48 hours were spent intensively doing so. As for the Victorious, she had 10 pilots that had no combat experience at all, so focused on drills as much as they could. Still, practice itself could be dangerous, and to prove it, four of their aircraft were lost during the drills. Fortunately, the pilots survived and were picked up out of the water. As the Victorious had the largest number of Fulmars, it would be responsible, during the exercises of Operation Berserk, to cover the lowest altitudes. The sea hurricanes and martlets would provide cover from 5,000 feet upwards. During those two days, many kinks were worked out and new ones discovered, and then they were gone over and over until smoothed out. In all, the carriers and their fighters focused on high and low sorties, WT transmissions, the all-important identification, and dusk landings. It was assumed by the admirals aboard that all these wireless signals would get the attention of the Germans, but Vice Admiral Seifert deemed the risk worthwhile. He, Seifert, wrote of Operation Berserk, back to the Admiralty, that what had been learned was priceless and would stand them in good stead when they faced the Germans. The one sour note was the results of the refueling attempts. Almost every one of those operations took much longer than expected. Some of that had been due to the weather and choppy waves, to be sure, but still no quarter would be given when the attacks began. No excuses accepted. On August 7th, the lead part of the convoy approached the straits. Tension quickly rose throughout the convoy as the signal was sent out. Admiral Seifert and Rear Admiral Burrow both took some relief that now, at least, the various ships could carry out complicated maneuvers, which gave them options in dealing with the soon-to-appear attacks. Now that Pedestal was close to the Rock of Gibraltar, the RAF Coastal Command there kept anti-submarine patrols overhead. At 11 a.m. on the 7th, a Catalina made contact with a German sub. The Coastal Command chased it away, but their presence was now known, if it wasn't already. The next day, August 8th, a Wellington from 233 Squadron harassed another German sub, one of three in the area about 125 miles, or 201 kilometers, southeast of Valencia, Spain. The sub managed to get away, being only damaged, but it was now sure the Axis knew that Pedestal was in the western Mediterranean. On the afternoon of the 8th, the Furious and the Manchester joined the convoy, as well as others as the carriers joined up with the main fleet. Now all 67 ships were in formation which brought a whole other set of headaches and stresses. But that's what the practice had been about. During the night of August 9th, the last of the convoy entered the Straits. Fortunately, another fog rolled in, which pleased Seifert, yet he knew there was no way it could conceal the entire force, which was some ten miles long. In fact, one of the trailing vessels off of the coast of the northwest corner of Tangiers, spotted several Spanish fishing vessels, and in return, had been spotted. Seifert could only hope that they would not report what they had seen, but surely the Spanish had to have spies in the area, 
it would be foolish not to. With the weather being much calmer on the 10th, the convoy sped up to 13 and a half knots. The various forces were getting into their final positions. That morning, at 7.45, the Cairo, Tartar, Eskimo, Quinton, Ithero, Antelope, and the Derwent rejoined the main body from further ahead. Pedestal was now in its four-column formation, with the carriers astern. And though there was no enemy contact that day, there was plenty of excitement of the wrong kind. Several times that day, Hudson bombers from the rock were picked up by the carriers and planes sent out, as the land-based sub-patrols were not putting out their IFF, or Identification Friend or Foe, beacons. The carriers' fighters gave chase, and as such, the Hudsons dashed away, not knowing the fighters behind them were friendly. This happened several times that afternoon, and a complaint was set up the RAF chain of command. Yet the distractions and confusion continued. Fortunately, no one was shot down. Yet that, insofar of what it was, turned out to be only a stressful hindrance. The real problem occurred around 5 p.m. A French civil aircraft, flying from France to Algeria, passed over the convoy and was lucky not to be shot down, given the stress induced by the confusing Hudsons. But it got much worse when the pilot radioed Paris that he had just seen two battleships, two aircraft carriers, two cruisers, and 14 destroyers, and he also gave their speed and course. As an Italian historian later shared, this interesting information proved of the greatest usefulness later. As for when the Germans and or the Italians really discovered Pedestal, that's not the right question. They knew the situation Malta was in, having put her there, and so too did they know of its importance. Hence, the British would be back. It was just a matter of when, from what direction, and how many escort ships would there be. And taking that summation one step further, given Britain's losses during the last two attempts, whatever came through soon would probably be their biggest attempt yet. Accordingly, the Germans were equally determined to put forth their largest blocking force yet. However, the Axis did have an Achilles heel, their oil supply, which meant their battleships would not be a part of their attempt to further starve Malta into submission. To be sure, the Italians were constantly pleading with their partners for more oil, but Germany was having its own supply problems, what with having an empire from Moscow to Normandy, from Norway to North Africa. No, if the British were to be foiled, the best move Germany could make at this point was to add a division of heavy cruisers to Admiral Dazara's light cruiser division. That should give this more courageous than most Italian admiral the strength he needed to, at the very least, turn away the convoy at the most, destroy it, with the help of German air power, of course. And Dazara and the Italians had a plan to stop Pedestal. In fact, it was the same plan they had used before, to their satisfaction. Always, as before, the entire British convoy would not make the complete trip to Malta. Before they reached the Narrows between Sicily and Tunisia, the majority of the escorts would turn for home not wanting to risk running the minefields or the close-by bomber bases. 
Those that would accompany the merchant ships on its last leg of their trip would only be cruisers and destroyers. Given that, the Supermarina, or the Italian Supreme Command Naval Operations, would surely be able to send out a force large enough to deal with the remaining escorts. What's more, hopefully, there would be fewer escorts than planned on by the British, as the Italian naval strength from the southern part of Sicily would reduce their numbers. Basically, if the merchant ships of Pedestal wanted to reach Malta, they would have to go through four lines of defenses. Subs, minefields, e-boats, and of course, German air attacks. In fact, there was already an Axis subforce in the far western Mediterranean, just north of Algiers. There, there were seven Italian and two German subs. Their mission was to locate the convoy and attack it, with special emphasis on the carriers. Then, given the outcome of that battle, other Italian subs, based at Sardinia and Sicily, would head out and await the convoy near the Narrows, that is, those of them that had run and survived the minefield. But just to be sure, another sub, the Asteria, would be placed just west of Malta to surprise and hopefully sink any ship that had run the gauntlet at the Narrows, which would hopefully by then be exhausted and perhaps already damaged. Strangely, the Germans and the Italians would not be working closely together to stop Pedestal. In fact, the Germans did not know of the number of Italian subs in the Mediterranean. So they counted on their own five bomber groups and one aerial torpedo unit based in Sicily to stop the Allied ships. Whatever the Italians brought to the party was just icing on the cake. Flieger Corps too which had been supporting Rommel in the desert campaign, flew back to Sicily during the night of August 10th and 11th. Also, some 20 JU-88s left Flieger Corps 10 from Crete to take part in stopping Pedestal. Still, for all of this, the Luftwaffe would be light on torpedo bombers, but this deficiency was more than made up for by the Italians as they had mostly switched two torpedo bombers as their only form of air attacks against the British. The Germans were pleased to hear that this foremost air force, as Italy described itself, had several new types of torpedoes to try out, and they would do so during Operation Pedestal. And to show the Germans that Italy could be counted upon to bring Malta and the British Royal Navy to their knees, some 320 Italian aircraft, fighters, bombers, and reconnaissance planes would help out against the coming convoy. With such a force, the Axis started sending out long-range reconnaissance flights to find the convoy. They were, in fact, flying over the western base of the Mediterranean by August 11th. But the first identification of the ships came from their subs, just north of Tangiers. The Axis ships and planes were alerted, and as they had found Pedestal so far west, they would have plenty of opportunities to go after her. But first, their carriers had to be dealt with. Hello. And thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, episode 87, 
a clash of wills. On August 11th, the Italian sub Yarsik was lying still, submerged just north of Tangiers, with its hydrophones on, listening for any approaching ships, but more precisely, its propellers. It was a tedious affair, one the Italian submariners were used to. Still, time went by slowly. The silence of the crew was not only to help their comrades listen out for enemy ships, but also to reduce noise coming from the sub, as any convoy was sure to have destroyers listening out for them. At 3.40 p.m., the operator signaled the captain, enemy detected. The sound specifically was turbines. But rather than reacting, the sub's captain, Targia, waited to see if the sound grew louder, as in, was the ship approaching them? The operator ascertained that it was. At 4 p.m., Captain Targia had his sub empty its ballast tanks of enough water so the vessel could slowly rise until it broke the surface. Engaging the engines, Targia moved his sub west, cautiously, while lookouts were placed on the conning tower. Some 38 minutes later, the port lookout, a midshipman, spotted a dark outline. Getting in a little closer, the outline was of an enemy battleship and a carrier. As the ships were going from his left to his right, the captain waited for them to pass, and then got in behind them, to make an attack on the carrier, per his instructions. Waiting until 4.47 a.m. the next day, the U.R. sick released three torpedoes. There were two explosions the third must have missed. But before Captain Targia could ascertain the damage done, his ship came under intense depth charge attack, four to be exact. Yet as Targia dove his ship, the attacks were less each time. The UR-6 survived to attack again another day, but so too did the struck carrier. For whatever reason, the sub-attack on August 11th did not get recorded into the British official history. The only place it even remotely shows up is in the records of the corvette Jeanquil. She had heard and recorded the sounds of the four death charge attacks. It had been assumed that the damage done to the carrier was minimal, and the escorts assumed that they had killed the Italian sub. That day of August 11th was spent with the topping off of the nearby ship's fuel tanks. Vice Admiral Seifert made the observation that things had gone much more smoothly and took less time. Sure signs of a now experienced crew. Going back a bit, around 8 a.m., just three hours and 45 minutes after the URSIC had launched three torpedoes, she launched two more. By now, the convoy was just south of the Balearic Islands, due west of Valencia, Spain. As these deadly fish had been seen by the corvette Coldsfoot as they surfaced, the intended targets were alarmed and moved out of the way. Captain Targia didn't want to take any more chances, lest he be attacked by a destroyer. Surfacing, he radioed to Rome the convoy's speed, composition, and position. Rome, when they digested the entire message, sent out an all-units-to-stations alarm. To be fair, Gibraltar intercepted their message and sent it back to the convoy. The Axis knew of Pedestal and where it was, and Pedestal now knew the Axis knew. 
Soon after, contact was made with enemy bombers. Actually, five contacts were made. All long-range JU-88s, but they were all chased away by carrier-based fighters. In truth, the approaching Germans were not raids, but reconnaissance. Still, one British fighter claimed to have shot down one of the German aircraft. This was not substantiated by the German flight records. But more importantly, the Germans now had an even more accurate idea of the fleet's position and composition. As the carriers all had some fighters in the air seeking to find German bombers before being found, problems arose. It was simply numbers. Victorious had one plane unable to make it back to the carrier for mechanical reasons. However, the pilot was rescued, and according to his estimation, going by the sound, the engine was incorrectly installed. It wouldn't be the first time. Victorious again had one of its fulmars seemingly shoot off a very light while on patrol, thus giving away their position. In truth, the port wing had caught fire, and the pilot was forced to ditch into the sea to put the fire out. Again, the pilot was rescued, this time by the W-class destroyer Wishart. A patrol of four Sea Hurricanes of 800 Squadron from Indomitable came upon a Ju-88 and gave chase. In a burst of bullets and resulting smoke, 800 Squadron claimed to have taken the Ju-88 out. Yet instead of crashing into the sea, the German plane turned, now that it was being left alone, and shot up the trailing hurricane. It was forced into the sea, but again, the pilot was rescued. Though the convoy's aircraft inventory was dropping, the pilots, whose experience could not be replaced until after Pedestal was over, were surviving. Pedestal was getting off lightly. Just before noon, two separate ships, the Nelson and the Charybdis, spotted disturbances on the surface. As this was three miles away from the closest ship, the area was closely watched for the next few hours. But nothing came of it. Nerves were starting to tense. Waves were starting to look like torpedoes. The sun's glare, like light, bouncing off of an enemy wing. Just past noon, it was decided that the modified Courageous-class battlecruiser, now the HMS Furious carrier, would start Operation Bellows. They had tested their Spitfires the day before. Only one was found to be faulty. The remaining 38 would now take off and make for Malta, adding to the island's defenses. At 12.29, eight of her planes took off and took up station overhead. Exactly 30 minutes later, the second group of eight were launched into the air. It was then the enemy attacked. The carriers were near the rear of the convoy, the Eagle to the right. Everyone close by seemed to be focused on watching Furious put her fighters and its deck crew through their paces. But seemingly out of nowhere, as this part of the convoy was just south of the largest of the Balearic Islands, as the Eagle was steaming at 13 knots on the starboard leg of a zigzag, she was hit by four torpedoes at 1.15 p.m. The first torpedo hit the ship's port quarter. The other three torpedoes came within the next 10 seconds. With the impact of the first torpedo, Eagle listed five degrees to port. But with the other three strikes, that increased to 15 degrees. A, C, and D boiler rooms were immediately flooded, and the corresponding bulkheads collapsed. People scrambled to the lifeboats. Others jumped off. But before too long, the port side of the flight deck 
was in the water. Smoke and steam began to escape from and then surround the crippled vessel. The list to port was now at 30 degrees, which is where it stopped. But now the entire vessel began to sink straight down. Within six minutes, HMS Eagle was beneath the water. 131 officers and men, mostly from the ship's machinery spaces, were lost, as were 16 sea hurricanes. As for the aircraft patrolling overhead, they worked through their numbness, or shock, and requested permission to land on one of the other two carriers, Indomitable and Victorious. Right away, the destroyers Laforet and Lookout, along with the tug Jaunty, moved in to search for survivors. Altogether, the three ships saved 67 officers, including the captain, and 862 sailors. Later, it would be discovered that the German U-boat 73 had fired the four torpedoes. Captained by Helmut Rosenbaum, U-73, a 750-ton vessel, had got wind of the convoy by the various propeller sounds. Rising to periscope depth, U-73 moved forward, but it was too late as a group of ships had just passed them by. But waiting a few minutes, another group started to approach. Rosenbaum spotted another carrier as the last ship in the starboard line. U-73 went deeper and approached the carrier, which he recognized as the Eagle, all but ignoring the seven destroyers between himself and the target. Somehow, his sub was not detected. Rosenbaum came to within 500 yards of the Eagle, a textbook maneuver, and then fired off a full salvo of four bow torpedoes. Later, looking back, it was wondered by the British how a sub could have been just 400 or so yards away from two destroyers when it launched its deadly torpedoes and not been discovered. The best answer offered was that a layer of cold water of differing density just above the sub had screened it from the searching beams of the ASICs on the screen. Even if this was not the real reason, it would happen in the future in the Mediterranean. After releasing his torpedoes, Rosenbaum's crew knew that the nearby destroyers would go into a defensive search mode. In anticipation, he had the bow decks flooded and ordered all the spare hands to move forward. As U-73 dove down, they heard the four torpedoes explode. Twelve minutes later, the U-boat's crew, still diving, heard the carrier's boilers blow up while underwater. Then came the first of many depth charge explosions. As stated, the flotilla leader, La Foray, and her sister destroyer, the Lookout, which had just come back from refueling, along with the tug Jaunty, moved in close to the crippled carrier to look for survivors. However, the Lookout had the double duty of finding out where the sub had been when it attacked the carrier to drop death charges. It was joined by the Cryptus, Yet, it was too late. Captain Rosenbaum had already begun his frantic dive. As men were rescued and the waters below disturbed by explosions, the rest of the convoy quickly moved away from the Eagle's last location. Not to be cold-blooded, but it was now noted that Pedestal only had 60 serviceable aircraft left. From the moment Eagle disappeared under the waves until the rescue ships came back to the convoy, literally covered with survivors at 2.29 that afternoon. Numerous 
sightings of enemy submarines, torpedo wakes, and Aztec contacts were reported. Most, if not all, were found to be false. No one else wanted to go the way of Eagle, and everyone knew their chances of overall success decreased with each lost escort. During all this, and longer still, U-73 stayed submerged at 500 feet, her hull nervously creaking due to the unaccustomed pressure. Yet, to be sure, Rosenbaum had the auxiliary machines cut off as well as the bilge pump. His battered vessel made enough noise on its own, enough to get them caught. The crew still did not know how they were able to approach the carrier. The captain just knew it was his duty to try. After lying still for three hours, Rosenbaum had U-73 slowly rise to the surface, sending out a signal to Admiral Kreisch, C&C German subs in the Mediterranean. He reported the convoy's speed, bearing, and composition, and that he and his were unharmed. That night, Nazi Germany celebrated. The Deutsche Rundfunk broadcasted a special edition. Rosenbaum was awarded the Knight's Cross of the Iron Cross. During that same day, August 11th, around 345, the survivors of Eagle were passed around to the various ships. Despite this, Operation Bellows continued. Other planes were sent up and tested. 37 fighters in all were launched and flown directly to Malta, who needed all the fighter support she could get. As the carriers were 584 miles or 939 kilometers from the island, the Spitfires would have no trouble reaching their destination. Later that evening, Vice Admiral Sir Ralph Leatham of Malta signaled their thanks and that all 37 aircraft had arrived safely. But before the night was out, the British would have their own victory. That night, just after midnight, the Admiralty-modified W-class destroyer, the Wolverine, built in 1918, made contact at 5,000 yards, bearing 265 degrees. The Wolverine and the other four screening destroyers traveling with Furious were on the port leg of a zigzag, all with the speed of 21 knots. As the night was pitch black, there was no moon, their sonar became their only eyes and ears. Lieutenant Commander Grenton of the Wolverine had the death charges prepared. Gun B was already loaded, so turned to the bearing. But when the crew asked Grenton for permission to fire, they were told to wait. After what had happened that day with Eagle, Grenton wanted revenge, but he also wanted to make sure that no other ships were lost that day. When his men did attack the enemy sub, he wanted to make sure a kill was scored. Now his destroyer was just 800 yards away, and yet the order to fire was not given. Suddenly, Gretton ordered full speed. Now moving 26 knots, Gretton waited until the last second, not to drop charges, but to turn his ship into the path of the surfaced submarine. Gretton then ordered for crash stations to be sounded. Everyone gripped something solid near them. Wolverine struck the sub just behind the conning tower basically running it over. The sub and its crew, equally stunned, rolled over and began to sink. Gretton ordered the engines to stop, and the destroyer returned to the point of contact. Within minutes, two large explosions could be heard, 
The Wolverine had not dropped any death charges. The explosions, it was surmised, must have come from the enemy's torpedo warheads. Soon oil appeared on the surface and started spreading over the area. The submarine had been the Italian vessel Dagobur, led by Captain Picori. There were no survivors. Gretton's daring attack did not go unpunished. Wolverine's bows were heavily damaged. The engine room had to be evacuated. Steam was cut off from the boiler rooms, which were fortunately undamaged. The captain, when questioned later, spoke highly of his men, certainly of the ones in the engine room, as they were the ones closest to the point of contact. When Captain Gretton was asked why did he increase his speed to full just before ramming the surfaced sub, he said, with a straight face, that it was his determination not to miss. Though eventually capable of 11 knots, the Wolverine would have to return to Gibraltar. The destroyer Malcolm, that had stayed with the damaged Wolverine since its incident with the sub, escorted her partway back to the rock. Then they were met by the corvettes Burdock and Armera from further west, and together all three of them made for the British port. Also on its way back to Gibraltar was the converted carrier Furious. As she turned and headed west, the Italians believed that either the Urarsic or the now-sunken Dagobur had damaged her. The truth was, Furious had completed her mission when she released her last 23 Spitfires that were now on their way to Malta. Still, the Italians were pleased with themselves. Yet, it had been some hours since the Dagobur had reported in.